Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, guys, and thank you so much for joining us once again this week. Before we get started with this week's episode, we'd like to say a huge thank you to our newest patron supporters. So they are Ellie, Kenny Payton, Lynn's Milligan, Jade Williams, Stephanie Masson, Gemma Broad, Melanie Pomfret, Stacey Thatcher, Lindsay McGreechy, <laughs> I hope I've got that right, Mary Oakley, Jackie Britt, Marta Robertson and Katie Chambers. And I just wanted to give a special mention to Marta and say uh, thank you so much for getting in touch with us with um, with your lovely comments. And we wanted to say a special thank you to Janine. We're really sorry, Janine, that your um, Patreon shout out got lost somewhere along the way. We're really sorry about that. So thank you so much for when you signed up. And I also want to say thanks to Barry Comover, who is prolific on our Facebook group. And I'm not sure we ever gave Barry a thank you uh, for being a patron. So thank you, Barry. Uh, we really appreciate the support. I can't remember what name he signed up with, but then I'm sure he changed it. But he's a cheeky one, so we'll... We don't know. Uh, yeah, if you want to join these guys, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And congratulations to anybody who won one of our prizes in the January big competition over on Patreon. So all of the winners were emailed and congratulations, everybody. So this week's episode was um, an episode that has been guest written by longtime listener and patron of the show, Leah. If you're on social media, you might remember her daughter Tace's cute drawing that she sent us. Do you remember that, Mark? I remember it really well and I loved it uh, because she'd put in speech bubble, I think, like you saying fuck off, Mark. And I just loved it. The whole drawing (laughs) was amazing amazing and it just captured us uh, exactly how we are. So thank you so much, Tace. Yeah, so thank you so much, both of you. And Leah started what she sent to us with the following. I'll get this out of the way first. I bloody love your show. My daughter and I love listening together and it is the catalyst for her true crime passion. Since listening to your show, I have desperately wanted to make a friend called Mark just so that I can say fuck off Mark in Bethan's accent. Listening to your accents on the podcast makes me feel less homesick because she's been in Australia for a while now. She said, I love it, but you cannot beat a British accent. Even if Mark Mark pronounces husband, husband... As a long-serving patron of your podcast, I thought you might find this case interesting. It's native to Tasmania, where I have lived for many years. We loved that she sent us this. She sent us um, some information, and I then went down loads of rabbit holes when I was sort of researching it a bit further. So it is a really Bethan case. When she sent it to us, she said she could imagine me presenting it, and it really does kind of seem like a Bethan case. It's a, a mass shooting rampage. It is my first case to present to everyone from Australia which is quite exciting. So I'm really looking forward to this week's one. That It's interesting as well that we're it's another mass shooting because obviously we did the Las Vegas shooting or what I entitled the Mandalay Bay Massacre. Uh, we did that last week. So uh, yeah, continuing that um, terrible theme. We do keep copying each other, don't we? I did a heist and then you did some robberies and then you've done a mass shooting and I'm, I'm doing a mass shooting. So maybe we need to start mixing things up a little yeah, bit Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're totally in sync somehow. It's oh weird. Oh So to begin with, Leah gave us some information about the setting for today's episode. So Tasmania or Tassie is an island located south of mainland Australia and it is still technically classed as Australia. Landmass-wise, it is the equivalent size of Ireland, but with a population of only 500,000 people. The indigenous population of Tasmania are the Tasmanian Aborigines, and they lived quite harmoniously until the British colonists invaded in 1803, but that is another story that deserves a podcast episode of its own. The Tasmanian people of today still has a vibrant Aboriginal community and is a melting pot of second, third, fourth generation migrants from all over the world that have set up home here. This is where the story begins. The Port Arthur historic site, located in southern Tasmania, used to be a penal settlement for some of the British convicts, the first British convicts that were sent to serve time for a variety of offences. These days, some of the offences that people were convicted of appear seemingly trivial. So they included stealing shirts, underwear and loaves of bread. But that is not to say some of the crimes that people were deported for were for more nefarious reasons. Some child convicts as young as 10 years old were sent to serve time at Port Arthur. These criminals were often from the poorest parts of England and were shipped to Tasmania, and these voyages were treacherous. It took three to five months to sail to Tasmania from the south of England. Can you imagine that? 
also it's going to be a, a ship that's just full of convicts and almost like a prison in itself in a way because you've got all these bad people that have committed these crimes some of them more trivial than others but that would have been I'm sure there would have been a murder or two aboard a ship like that over the three to five months that it took to sail to Tassie. Yeah and she's put they many people did not survive that voyage due to malnutrition shipwrecks disease murder because I mean yeah you're right if someone's on there because they're a murderer um, and also death during childbirth so like pregnant women being sent over there on a ship for three to five months could happen. Port Arthur these days, or the remnants of the settlement, acts as an open-air museum and is a very popular tourist attraction for visitors and locals alike. It has a vast expanse of historic buildings, including the old prison infirmary, the separate prison, which housed the worst offenders, so usually the murderers, and kept them in solitary confinement, and it even had punishment cells. There's also the remnants of the convict church and parsonage, which are still there, and everything in the Port Arthur settlement was built by convict labour. The tour guides at Port Arthur are very passionate about the place, and they set the scene during walking tours and even host ghost walks in the evening. Leah continued, When stepping onto the grounds of Port Arthur, you can't help but feel the energy of the history it contains, the pain, the loss, and the air of hope, for the few lucky people that actually served time there and left with their ticket of leave and had successful lives in Tasmania after their incarceration. Some of those convicts' ancestors are still in Tasmania today, and there is great pride taken in being part of the convict history. So I thought, yeah, she's really summed it up, hasn't she? It sounds incredible. That That is, and yeah, that's interesting that there's a real pride uh, taken in being part of the convict history because yeah. ordinarily that could bring shame onto a family even even today. But um, I mean, I'd love it, but not everybody would. So that's very interesting. I think, um, obviously, I can't say this for definite because it's just my understanding and my opinion is that these people suffered greatly when they were there. And I'm I couldn't really resist looking into some of the stories of people who were transported to Port Arthur. And actually, when you read the stories, the people who did manage to thrive afterwards, you'd be so proud of them if they were your ancestors. So um, whilst it's potentially not I'm proud of him for being a thief or I'm proud of him for doing X, Y, Z, it's the pride in what they went through to then come out the other side. So I think that that will kind of make a bit more sense shortly. So yeah, I then couldn't resist looking into some stories of people who were transported to Port Arthur. And I hope you don't mind me going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I just couldn't resist it. One that stuck with me was a man called William Thompson. He was a young shoemaker and he was transported in 1841 for life for burglary. What shocked me the most about his story was that he was sent to the coal mines as his punishment and he served 12 months underground. When we were discussing the Aberfan disaster, we kind of talked about how I cannot cope with small spaces. Being underground is one of my worst nightmares. And this guy literally spent a year harnessed with three other men to drag loaded coal carts underground working in appalling conditions. You you say that's your worst nightmare. It's the worst nightmare of many people, isn't it? And yeah, I think definitely. We, I think we talked about this very briefly. Obviously, we talked about it in, in your episode on Aberfan. We talked about it in that episode and then we talked about it in our Patreon episode on Jimmy Savile because he'd spent time down the mines mm-hmm. uh, in his youth. And uh, yeah, we talked about it then. So um, yeah, it's just a, a weird concept. And obviously, we don't really do it today, but I just couldn't deal with it. It really is the stuff of nightmares. He witnessed two shocking accidental deaths as well. So all of this would have surely made a really deep impression on him. But his story has a happy ending, however, because after he went to the ground... I knew that that was going to come up. After he went to the Browns River Probation Statement... Statement? The Browns River Probation Station, sorry. He was released. And he eventually found work with a master shoemaker in Hobart. There he met his future wife, who was also a convict called Elizabeth Miller. They got married in 1852, and they went on to have seven children. So... If he was your ancestor, you you would have that pride, wouldn't you? That yes, he was transported and that was for life. So that meant he couldn't come back to the UK. But once he was there, he really made it as best of the situation that he could. He could have totally gone the other way, but he didn't. And just think of that. That's a huge family to have. And that was back in the 1800s. So there, there will be so many people now in Australia, in Tassie, that are descendants of, of him. So that's fascinating. 
The stories that I found the saddest were the children who were transported out of the UK and were sent to the youth portion of the port. So this was Port Pur and it was the first prison built exclusively for boys. It was an influential factor to the world's attitudes to and the debates about juvenile crime management. So it was meant to be there to save the boys, to reform them. That was the initial point of this. But it had insufficient resources insufficient facilities they couldn't really provide adequate accommodation and supervision there wasn't really adequate moral reformation either or trade training and the boys there were exposed to these older men who were at Port Arthur so this had terrible examples set for them it was harder for the boys as well because the men that were transported to Port Arthur had the opportunity for probation and some semblance of freedom like William Thompson but if a boy was sent there they couldn't leave until they were at least 16 years old deemed literate, skilled and good. But how could they ever be classed as that was the challenge in a place with a cycle of more and more punishments and reinforcement that they were a bad person? It's such a difficult one. I dare say that there was, and I I don't think you, I can just kind of read, I don't think you're going to cover it because we don't, we probably don't know, but I dare say there was probably quite a lot of abuse, sexual and and physical abuse of, of those boys. Uh, which would have had a lasting impact on them and and caused major problems around trying to become literate and skilled and a good person because they'd have been through so much trauma. But I bet there was a lot of abuse there. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing that I've seen and nothing really jumped out at me about um, like sexual abuse or anything like that. But definitely the punishments, even if they weren't at the time classed as abuse, were very physical. So, yeah, they would have they were really on the back foot from the very beginning they're supposed to be going there for reformation and to you know to be saved they're not gonna be an article in the sydney morning herald stated recent studies suggest they also had a higher mortality than those at port arthur or elsewhere in the colony or england as a result of their impoverished childhoods of disease and poor nutrition their imprisonment and their risks of injury in the labor punishments it's just heartbreaking isn't it it is, and it, it it brings into a wider debate because this is this still goes on. So obviously, children still go to youth offenders, uh, detention centres, prison, essentially, and they've done wrong. So that's obviously the right thing that they they need to be punished. But they're deprived of that family life and of a mom and a dad or a mom or a dad. But some might say they're better off in in what is effectively prison but yeah just what damage is that going to do to a a 12 year old who finds themselves separated from from their mom or their dad or both and and their friends and family and surrounded by a bunch of other criminals it's i just don't know where where i sit with it because they need to be punished but it it does need to be more around reforming them and it's if you look at the port arthur website they've got some stories about real people so that's where i found out um about the story of William Thompson and there's some other stories on there so it's well worth having a little look and and reading about some of the people but even if these boys then um, reached the age of 16 were deemed good and could leave the confines of prison they were then homeless when they left they didn't have any money they were barely literate they often only were capable of basic labouring and they're then fighting to get work against free men They had no chance to kind of go into the towns nearby and make a life for themselves, really. And there's a book that I'm going to look for, which is called The Lost Boys of Mr. Dickens. And it basically tells the real life story of two young boys sent from England to that prison. And it details a really shocking day where the day to day violence, which was just normal in jail life, escalated to a brutal murder. So I'm going to try and find that book. Yeah, let me uh, borrow it after you. Yeah, so enough about this. Let's get on with today's case. So we'll return to Leah's script. She wrote, It was an ordinary Sunday on the 28th of April, 1996. Port Arthur had opened its doors for the day and had its usual trickle of visitors. April is the tail end of the big tourist rush in Tasmania, which starts in November when the weather is getting warmer. So the majority of visitors that day were locals. And this is where Martin Bryant comes in. Martin Bryant was born in Tasmania in 1967. His childhood appeared to be ordinary by most people's standards. He grew up with his mother, his father and his little sister in southern Tasmania, not far from Port Arthur. But he wasn't an ordinary kid. He had below average intelligence, so an IQ of around 66. He was prone to outbursts, was socially awkward, described as a loner and didn't have many friends. So I really needed to know more about Martin Bryant. His mum described him as an annoying and different child. 
And a psychologist's view was that Bryant would never hold down a job as he would aggravate people to such an extent that he'd always be in trouble. He was described by teachers as being distant from reality and unemotional. So talk about setting someone else up to fail from the very beginning. Well, it's it's fair to diagnose someone with all of this and and say they're going to struggle, but try and provide some support in childhood to set them up to win. Exactly. Just describing your child as annoying and different. It's just annoys me a lot. But I think the worst bit is the different as well. The annoying. Yeah, all kids are annoying. I get it. All moms are going to say my kid's annoying. But to call them different, what the fuck's wrong with that? Fuck you. So at school, Bryant was a disruptive and sometimes violent child who suffered severe bullying by other children. But he was also known for dangerous behaviours. So um, one anecdote was that he pulled on someone's snorkel whilst they were diving. Um, he was known as for torturing animals and more. And eventually alert. he was assessed. Exactly. He was assessed and transferred to a special education unit in 1980. But there he deteriorated both academically and behaviorally through the remaining school years that he was there. When he left school in 1983, Bryant was assessed for a disability pension by a psychiatrist who wrote, he cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration, could be schizophrenic, and his parents face a bleak future with him. So, I mean, his parents are trying their best. It, it does sound like it, to be fair, oh. that they're, they've continued to try and support him and, and help him be the best version of himself. But it's just incredibly sad. He, he could be schizophrenic and just not be receiving the right care that, that he would need. It, it's just sad. It's, it doesn't sound like it's his fault, does it? Yeah, and Bryant did receive a disability pension so he did work as a handyman and a gardener um, and at the time of today's events he was still receiving disability benefits and in an examination after the massacre a forensic psychiatrist found that Bryant was borderline mentally disabled with an IQ of 66 which is equivalent to an 11 year old and whilst awaiting trial Bryant was examined by a court-appointed psychiatrist who was of the opinion that Bryant could be regarded as having shown a mixture of conduct disorder attention deficit hyperactivity and a condition known as Asperger's syndrome. A psychiatrist hired at the request of Bryant's legal counsel found that Bryant was socially and intellectually impaired and furthermore finding that he didn't display signs of schizophrenia or mood disorder the psychiatrist concluded though Mr Bryant was a clearly distressed and disturbed young man he was not mentally ill. And Martin Bryant was eventually diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome once he was incarcerated. And there were a couple of other interesting moments in Bryant's past, which some people have suspected he might have had more to do with. Potentially, these were his first murders, although this is purely speculation. We don't know this for definite, but um, we'll return to Leah now and she'll tell us a little bit about that. So I thought that'd be intriguing for you, Mark. So she'd written, as a teen, Bryant had conjured up an unusual friendship with an older lady named Helen Harvey. Helen and Martin met when he went to her place to do some odd jobs as a teenager. Despite the 35-year age gap, they became close friends and it was speculated as being maybe more than friends. So a neighbour had said, I think she was a lonely woman who enjoyed company and he certainly provided that for her. Fucking hell, provided a lot more by the sounds of it. I know, it's so creepy, isn't it? But maybe, maybe not, I don't know. And I, I couldn't really work out what the age gap between them was that bad, but... Um, I had to look at what was he doing for her. So I found out that he was assisting her with tasks. Now, this is going to freak you out. Feeding the 14 dogs that lived inside the house and the 40 cats living inside the garage. No, that is absolutely, that is disgusting. 14 dogs is ridiculous in a house. But I mean, I like dogs, but that's still too much. That's not fair. 40 cats, 40 pusses in that house is disgusting. I knew you'd have loads to say. I've literally written in my script. I thought you'd have a lot to say about that. (laughs) I fucking hate cats anyway. I hate them. And I'm I'm really sorry to anybody that has cats like Bethan who loves her cats and they're vile. Um, But 40 cats, even you, Bethan, must be like, that's disgusting. It's inappropriate. There is no need for 40 cats unless you're a cat rescue centre. Honestly, I just just... don't think that's fair on the cats. No. And also, I think you're going to get a lot of inbreeding, aren't you? Which is going to cause lots of problems because they're all going to be fucking each other. Oh. Oh, Mark, for goodness sake. But what I would say is this was a mansion. It was like a very big house. So 14 dogs is ridiculous, but they're in a big house. I'm st- I'm on your page with the 40 cats. I think 40 cats is just too much. It's extravagant. It's ridiculous. And it's not fair. I think three cats is the perfect amount. Mm. Hashtag my house. 
No, I think that's way too much as well. I do think, though, in somewhere like Australia, you've got a lot more open space around your house and stuff. So having more animals than... Because to us, that is a bit ridiculous. But I'm probably thinking of a four-bed semi-detached house, like a normal UK home. Whereas actually... Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I'm just thinking of like a basic standard, not a massive house, not a small house, just a normal in the middle. Actually, in Australia, the houses are bigger anyway. And this woman did have a mansion. So when Helen's mum died, Helen invited Bryant to come and live with her in the mansion. And they began spending large amounts of money, which included the purchase of more than 30 new cars in less than three years. Extravagant again. And the couple began to spend most days shopping, usually after having lunch in a local restaurant. But it was really interesting at this time because Bryant was reassessed for his pension and a note was attached to the paperwork that said his father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control. Bit worrying there. So in October 1992, Helen and Martin were involved in a car crash. Helen was killed and Martin, who was in the passenger seat, was injured, but he survived. When she died, Bryant inherited all of Helen's money. So a neighbour and a friend to Helen Harvey strongly believed that Bryant was to blame for her death. So he had told police how Helen had previously told him about Bryant grabbing the steering wheel whilst they were driving and saying that she had told him, well, her exact words were, one of these days, that little bastard is going to kill me. And he actually told the police about three different instances where Bryant had grabbed the steering wheel whilst they were driving along. They told him that they were going to look into this, but he told the press he didn't ever think Bryant was actually questioned about the accident. And the case continues to be classed as an accident. It's a really difficult one. There, there is, um, there was a, quite a big case in England, I think, where it was something very similar. There was an accident and the husband, hus- husband had uh, kind of uh, engineered this accident in order to kill the wife and he was found out for it. Uh, but it does happen. It's um, really, it's probably quite a good way of um, masking a, a murder, isn't it? Exactly. And less than a year after Helen's death, Bryant's father, Maurice, went missing A visitor to the Bryant property raised the alarm after seeing a note apparently in Maurice's handwriting pinned to the front door which read, call the police. So the police were called and they arrived and they searched the property and nearby in Bushland, the body of Maurice Bryant was discovered in a small dam near the house. Maurice was found laying down in three metres of water weighed down with his diving belt, uh, no, with Martin's diving belt, sorry, and a pack of anti-anxiety medication located on his body. There were 18 tablets missing his death was reported as suicide. This is where it gets really interesting for me. So looking at this as these are just two separate accidents, you could be forgiven for kind of going, what a horrible thing to happen in the space of a year, you've lost a woman that was close to you and your dad. However, I'm suspicious. So I looked into it and Helen Harvey had left her house and farm to Martin Bryant. Fair enough, he'd inherited it. But she had named Maurice as the trustee. So Martin's father alone held all the money and all the power over the sale of properties. And the will of Maurice Bryant showed $250,000 was left to Bryant. So with both Helen and his father out of the picture, Bryant inherited the lot. I know this is purely speculative, but don't you think that sounds convenient? Yeah, that that I mean, come on, of course he's, he's offed his father. And of course, he's off Helen Harvey as well. Um, and clearly, the motive is is money and control of of that money. So, yeah, he's definitely definitely killed his dad. And oh, I like how I'm there going. You know, it's just speculative, and you've gone definitely did it. Next, <laughs> and I did find it really interesting to kind of look at some more of what was going on in the background of him because we quite often say it's hard to know what the reasoning was for people to do things like this, especially when we looked at the Mandalay Bay massacre and we were talking as well about the Hungerford massacre. Knowing why people do what they do, I think is quite important for me. It's one of the reasons that I like looking into true crime. So I did look into Martin's background a little bit more. It doesn't necessarily answer everything, but it kind of maybe gives you a good idea of of what's going on. So we know that he had this really troubled upbringing in his childhood, and we know that he's finding it very difficult in life because he's very different to everybody else. And by late 1995, Martin Bryant became really suicidal. He decided he had had enough. He later stated, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly toward them, they just walked away. 
And although he had previously been little more than a social drinker, his alcohol consumption had increased. And although he hadn't consumed any alcohol on the day of the massacre, it had especially escalated in the six months prior to April 1996. That's interesting because uh, Stephen Paddock, the Mandalay Bay shooter, his alcohol consumption had also dramatically escalated in about the six months prior to that shooting. Wow, that's really interesting kind of comparison with the two. So Martin had begun having horrific dreams of notoriety and getting revenge on the people he hated. Years previously, his father Maurice had tried to purchase the local Seascape Motel, but a couple called David and Nolene, the Martins, bought this property before Bryant's father could get the money together. Maurice had often complained to his son about the double dealing that the Martins had done to secure the purchase and his father had even offered to buy another property from the Martins at Palmer's Lookout Road but they declined the offer. This bad feeling between the two families never went away. Bryant apparently believed that the Martins had deliberately bought the property to hurt his family and he later described the Martins as very mean people and as the worst people in his life. So let's fast forward to the 28th of April 1996. At around noon, Bryant headed to the Seascape Motel where he shot David and Nolene Martin, the owners of the Seascape that he hated, just marched up there and shot them dead. A random couple stopped at the Seascape and they narrowly avoided the scene because they arrived just as Bryant was locking up and he was behaving in a manner that they described as quite rude He told them they couldn't look at the accommodation and they felt really uncomfortable and they left at about 12.35, so really close between. Bryant then travelled past the Port Arthur historic site towards a Palmer's Lookout Road property, which was the one that was other one that was owned by the Martins. He drove to the home next door of Roger and Marion Lana, who he also had some issues with. Luckily for them, Roger refused Bryant any entry, Marion was hiding in the house and Bryant headed off towards Port Arthur Historic Site. Marion later stated she felt that she and her husband would have been killed as well if Roger had let him into the house. Two years earlier, Marion had reported Bryant to the police after a series of disturbing late night phone calls and visits and Marion said, I think he came to settle the score with me, I guess I would have been next had he been able to come inside. Marion wasn't the only one that Bryant planned to settle scores with, but the next part of the plan was less about individuals and more about gaining the notoriety that he so wished for, and there were a lot of innocent bystanders that got caught in what has been described as his vindictive rampage. Martin Bryant, then aged 25, which I always find really fascinating when someone's this young, and I don't know why, I sometimes just assume that they're going to be a lot older, they're so jaded because so much has gone on, but... He's still just 25. I, I think you're right, but I think I think a lot has gone on in his life, hasn't it? It has. So. A lot has gone on. I was just shocked at how young he was. So he paid his entry fee and entered the grounds of the Port Arthur Historic Site at 1.10. He made a beeline for the Broad Arrow Cafe, where about 60 visitors were enjoying some refreshments after their tours of Port Arthur. He ordered a meal and sat outside to eat. So I hope you don't mind me doing a little bit of a mark thing here, but I felt like I could kind of describe the scene a little bit. And I have um, put in a photograph for you, Mark, so you can imagine where he was sat. So if you scroll a little bit, you can see what the building looked like. Very Australian. So Australian, isn't it? It's so Australian. We'll have to put it on social media so you guys can see it too. He was sat on the deck, just to let you know. So when I read this bit to you. As he ate, Bryant's heavy green sports bag rested on his leg and he could feel the weight not only of what he had already done in shooting the Martins, not only with the weight of what he had planned to do, but also with the cold, heavy bulk of the weapons that he had brought with him. He mused about the person working at the cafe who had once sacked him for stealing. He sat out on the deck eating, looking around, his long blonde hair wafting in the breeze, smiling at times, and no one thought anything was wrong. But then... Once he had finished his food, Bryant drew an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. He opened fire in the kitchen, then in the servery area, before he made his way back out into the main cafe where everyone were eating. So, yeah, I mean, that was probably the only nice, light-hearted thing I could get into this, because by this point, people were describing him as having, like, dead eyes. At first, he was just walking around like normal, and then just something, like, a switch was flicked. 
So the cafe was very small and it was particularly busy at the time as many people were waiting for the next ferry. Using this AR-15 assault rifle, Martin Bryant fired 17 shots in just 15 seconds. It was a bloody, violent and indiscriminate attack. In the aftermath, people just didn't know what had happened. One woman was leant up against a wall in shock. Her 15-year-old daughter was at her feet and a man said, Are you okay? She just replied with, No, my daughter's dead. One family fought for their lives, grandfather, mother, father and toddler luckily escaping the chaos at this point. So Jason Winter had been helping the busy cafe staff and as Bryant turned towards Jason's wife Joanne and their 15-month-old son, Jason threw a serving tray at Bryant in an attempt to distract him and Joanne's father pushed his daughter and grandson to the floor and under the table. Others were unaware of what was even happening and they were just shot from behind. And so I know I'm repeating myself, but it's absolutely mad. From the first shot in just 15 seconds, Bryant had fired 17 shots and this killed 12 people and wounded 10 more. And he later drew the following picture of the cafe. So you can see here, this is is where I was standing. These are the people he was shooting and you can see he's drawn that he's moved around. Was this a picture, and again, we'll we'll put it on social media, but it looks like a child's picture, really. Was this a picture that he'd drawn for the police, or yeah. was this a picture... For right. the investigation. I, wo- I wondered if this was some sort of picture that he'd drawn for his own benefit, which would have been even more disturbing. No, I think it was it was just part of the investigation into, so what did you do, where, where were you, who did you shoot first, that sort of thing. And he drew, yeah, a very childlike picture. And you may be thinking, like, that's enough. But considering the carnage that he had caused, it wasn't enough. He wasn't finished. Bryant was near the exit and he prevented others from attempting to run past him and escape and he started to shoot more. And then he left the cafe and he strode purposefully towards the gift shop, but continuing to fire at anyone he saw. People hid where they could under tables or they ran if they had the chance. Bryant fatally shot the two local women who worked in the gift shop and in total he fired 29 shots, killed 20 people and wounded 12 more in this section of the rampage after the cafe. Oh my God. So he's, he's killed another 12 people on top, uh, another 20 people on yeah. top of the 12 and on top of the two. And he's wow. wounded 12 more. And at some point he reloaded his weapon. And sadly, Jason Winter, who I mentioned in the cafe, was shot and killed at this point. This kind of reminded me of the guy in your, in your episode about the Mandalay Bay shooting, where he was involved in two kind of shootings and events. I just felt like, he dodged a bullet, at the, you know, yeah. literally at the time at the beginning, but it was his time because he wasn't so yeah, lucky the second it, time. It, it feels so cruel to say it, but with um, it does sometimes feel it does feel like those Final Destination films that somebody has very fortunately got away with their their life in a in something awful uh, or the same incident, and then uh, you know the Grim Reaper is waiting around the corner for them, and that was always what fate had planned. So you kind of cheated death on this occasion, but we'll we'll still get you kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, it made me think that as well. It was really sad. I did think, however, um, his family must have been so proud because he not only saved his father-in-law, his wife and his child, but he was also the the reason he'd rushed out and got shot again was because he was trying to still help people. What an amazing guy. I mean, obviously not just him, a number of people would have been doing the same thing, but I just, yeah, it made me really sad to know that he'd got, you know, got his family to safety and he'd managed to do what he did before and then he still got shot the second sort of section, as it were, of the massacre. Yeah. Yeah, in part two of it, essentially. And he could have been quite selfish about it and very understandably so. And, and just stayed at the cafe once, um, Bryant had fucked off, but he went to try and help other people. And yeah, that's when he, when he, he got it. So he could have easily got away with his life, but his brave actions caused, uh, caused it to come to an end, sadly. So Martin Bryant then made his way out into the car park and towards the coaches. One of the coach drivers was shot in the back and he fell to the ground and was able to crawl under the bus, but he later died of his wounds. People were kind of fleeing in any way they could. There were groups trying to hide, people running away down the main road, driving away in their vehicles. Bryant then went to his vehicle, which was just past the coaches, and he changed to a self-loading rifle. He was shooting at people he knew he'd already injured. He fired at vehicles and he was stalking around the coaches. And I really feel like he was. He was on this mission. He was hunting. He was stalking. I can see him in my mind's eye and it is just this maniac with a rifle 
hell-bent on causing as much carnage as possible. I can just picture him. There was one couple called Janet and Neville, and they had fled to the car park. Janet had been shot and injured, and Neville had been forced to run. But he then returned to look for her, and Bryant had shot her another time to ensure she was dead. And when he spotted Neville coming back to look for his wife, he declared, no one gets away from me, and chased Neville... Finally, he aimed at his face and Neville ducked when he realised Bryant was about to pull the trigger. The bullet missed his head, but it hit his neck, momentarily paralysing him. He survived, but he went home without his wife. Bryant then got into his car. And one of the most awful eyewitness stories I read was, for me anyway, was the story of Nanette. She was fleeing with her two young daughters. She was carrying the three-year-old and she was urging the six-year-old to keep running just ahead of her. The three of them were fleeing along the road. When a yellow Volvo pulled up beside them, they thought someone had stopped to help and Nanette kind of moved towards the car by instinct, but it was immediately clear that this was the killer. He told her to get on her knees, which Nanette did. She pleaded for the lives of her two daughters and herself. He shot and killed both Nanette and the three-year-old she was carrying right there on the road. The six-year-old fled and hid behind a tree, but he chased her down and shot her too. Oh my God, Beth, and this is honestly, this is just... This encompasses so many different cases that we've ever covered because that reminds me of the Al Hilly family massacre in the French Alps. That it, it's just, it just, just when you think this can't get any worse, it, it gets worse. And that also reminds me of, of course, my favourite film, Eden Lake, when, uh, spoiler alert, the woman uh, thinks that she's found uh, help at the end, and actually, it's uh, it's the end for her because it's the perpetrators. It's just, yeah, this is just horrible. So Bryant then returned to his car and he drove up the road to the nearby toll booth, which was blocked by a BMW. He shot the people there before removing them from their car. He transferred his ammunition handcuffs, the AR-15 rifle and a fuel container to this BMW. He shot at another car and then he fled in this new vehicle. He drove a little bit further along to a service station where he stopped another car, a white Toyota, and forced the driver, Glenn, into the boot of the BMW he was driving. He shot the female passenger and and then continued his way back to the Seascape Motel. So along the way, he shot at another car. Near to the motel, he did the same again. Two more times, he fired his weapons at passing cars and injured the occupants. Um, And soon he stopped at the motel. He dragged Glenn out of the boot and handcuffed him to a stair rail within the house. And then he set the BMW on fire. So the people from the cars that he had targeted were alerting the police as well. And they kind of converged on the seascape and a siege ensued. Sometime during that night, hostage Glenn was shot and killed. At one point, the hotel caught fire and it was thought that perhaps setting the hotel on fire was an act of suicide, but actually badly burned Bryant ended up running out of the hotel and he ran to the police and eventually surrendered. And it was only after they put out the fire that they found Glenn's body and then also the remains of the Martins, who he'd shot previously. So he'd he'd gone full circle and gone back there, hadn't he then? He had. In total, Bryant took the lives of 35 men, women and children and injured and traumatised a further 25. This was the worst massacre perpetrated by a single gunman that Australia had ever seen. And the victims' ages ranged from 3 to 72. In a way, I find this worse than the Mandalay Bay Massacre. And I know that's quite a bold statement to come out with because they're both appalling and more people were killed and injured in the Mandalay Bay Massacre. But that was, I don't know, I think that, I find this guy is is worse because it's just so calculated and continued on for hours and hours in all different locations and he would have been facing the victims. So that, that mum with the two girls... Uh, so we shot the mum and one of her daughters and then the other daughter ran and he runs after her and then shoots her. He would have seen the fear on their faces, whereas with Stephen Paddock at the Mandalay Bay Massacre, that crowd was half a kilometre away from where he was firing at them. So it wouldn't have necessarily felt as real to him. And they're both horrible people, of course they are. But I just feel that Brian is worse. I don't, I don't know what you think. No, I completely agree because I think that he would have heard seen smelt the fear and the screams and the terror and everything going on and it's so much more close close and he was specifically you know to say to someone no one gets away from me targeting people he's stalking around hunting them 
they're both absolutely abhorrent cases and, and horrible people for what they've done and the, the lives they've taken. But this does feel so much colder. And yeah, Stephen Paddock just is that much further away that he's almost not necessarily seeing or feeling the impact. This is more intimate what Brian's really done. Is. Uh, and it's yeah it's it's just more disturbing for me and they're both as we said I can't emphasize that enough they're both horrific crimes and they're both horrific men but this is this is another level I think yeah it was really important for me to kind of then do a bit of research into kind of what happened afterwards because obviously it shocked the nation and there was a really substantial community fund set up for the victims of the Port Arthur massacre one of the sweet things I read, which there's not many positives, but I wanted to make sure I mentioned this, was that the murder of Nanette and her two daughters, Alana and Madeline, inspired a guy called Dr. Phil West, who had two girls in similar ages as the murdered children, to set up a foundation in their memory. So it's called the Alana and Madeline Foundation, and it supports child victims of violence and runs a national anti-bullying program. So there's something in their memory. So Bryant was held in Royal Hobart Hospital under heavy police guard whilst he was awaiting trial. According to a guard, there were at least two security guard job applications made by individuals who were seeking to exact retribution on Bryant, which is unsurprising considering it's locals and a local place that this all happened. It didn't even uh, occur to me that, 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 yeah, people would, of course, um, do that. And how would you try and screen those people out? Very Isn't that hard to do? Yeah. Yeah, normally in this country, it's usually that they would be guard by, uh, guarded by the police. So it's a little bit different, much harder to get into the police and would take a lot longer to, to do that. Um, and even though it was kind of, you know, he definitely did this, there was a really lengthy investigation. Eventually, he was sentenced on the 22nd of November 1996 by Supreme Court Judge William Cox. And he was sentenced to serve 35 life sentences, one life sentence for each count of murder. And then he was sentenced to 25 years for the remaining 36 charges on five other offences. So 20 attempted murders, three counts of infliction of grievous bodily harm, the infliction of wounds upon a further eight persons, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of unlawfully setting fire to property. So in total, this means he will never be released from prison. Throughout the trial and at sentencing, he never showed any remorse and he pleaded guilty to having carried out the shootings and he is serving his sentence at the Risdon Maximum Security Prison in Hobart, which is in the south of Tasmania. And there was loads of discussion occurring around the level of Bryant's mental health. As we said before, the, the, at the time of the offences, he was in receipt of disability support pension on the basis of being mentally handicapped and he was assessed, like I said earlier, um, but they also assessed that, you know, there was no option for him to be classed as legally insane so he wouldn't be sent to prison. This was a definitive, he knew what he was doing and he was sent to prison. And, and I suppose that when you look, when you break down that day and you look at the actions, um, the things that he did, that I could, it's really weird to say that that is a sane person, but I can kind of see that because it's so calculated. There's so much thought there and he is in control of what he's doing and he's really considered the order in which he was going to conduct the attack. So, um, yeah, I can, I can kind of see where they're coming from. So his lawyer actually did reveal that the suspected motivation for the massacre the kind of motivations were the refusal of the sale of the seascape by the owners, David and Nolene Martin, and then also to become notorious. So those were kind of basically, even his own legal team was like, this isn't, this is kind of all it, the reason behind it. From the moment that Martin Bryant was captured, he continually wanted to know how many people he'd killed, and he seemed impressed by the number. So I think you're right. I think to any normal person, this is this is not sane behaviour, However, he knows exactly what he did and he knows why he did it. So absolutely should he be in prison. And it's, it sounds like he's continuing to feast on on what he did and, and get off on that. Oh my God, he absolutely is because he's only allowed to listen to music on a radio outside his cell so that he can't listen to anything else. He is denied access to any news reports of his massacre. And photographers who took pictures of him in his prison cell were then forced to destroy the film in his presence when the governor found out. So he... He do, there's no photos of him in prison, all of that sort of thing, because he would get off on that. Yeah, because he, he clearly wanted that notoriety. 
So Leah finished with some information about the reforms that came back off the back of the massacre. So we're going to return to Leah here. So the horror of the Port Arthur massacre was the catalyst for sweeping gun reform in Australia. Rapid fire weapons were essentially outlawed as part of the National Firearms Agreement, which was enacted just 12 days after the shootings. Approximately 650,000 assault weapons were brought back by the government at a cost of $230 million. So you could essentially sell your weapon to the government because it was being outlawed. That is a great idea, actually, isn't it? And although the programme didn't eliminate gun homicides, there were no mass shootings in Australia until 2018 after this point, when seven people were found dead at a property in Margaret River in Western Australia. So Which it, it I'll be covering next week. There we go. But it, no, it didn't eliminate it, but at least it, it this didn't happen for a long time. It didn't happen in the same scale. And I think you have to, I mean, that's a lot of weapons, isn't it? You know, 650,000 assault weapons brought back by the government. I'm guessing that was across, like, that was all of Australia, so it would have included Tassie. Um, which I like to call it to make out that, you know, I'm familiar with it, which I'm not. Uh, uh, what I would say, I think the interesting thing is Australia is just not known for gun crime, as far as I know, in the same way that America would be. And we're known for a lot of knife crime in this country. I'm not saying we're perfect, but, um, but yeah, I wonder if that is off the back of this. I wonder how different Australia would look today and how it would be viewed had this actually not happened. I wonder if we would have seen um, more gun crime, but on a smaller scale, but but much more frequent. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. And it's something that Leah then touches on again as well, because she said... In the wake of a number of recent mass shootings across the United States, Australia's stance continues to remain the envy of Americans who are tired of gun violence. And I think that's a really fair point. If you're an American who is against guns and is looking for banning guns, actually, yeah, you would potentially be looking at this and saying, within 12 days, they got something in place. And to put this time period into perspective for UK listeners, the Port Arthur massacre occurred six weeks after the tragedy at Dunblane. So really close time-wise. And what did the UK do? Very similar to the, to Australia. Yeah, and I couldn't remember when when that was, but that is that is weird, isn't it? That that was just six weeks after Dunblane. So currently Martin Bryant is housed in a maximum security health unit of the prison, which only houses half a dozen inmates. When he has to attend hospital for medical treatment, he is taken under heavy correctional officer escort and as early as 5am, which is ironically for his own safety, so he won't get recognised by the public. At the Port Arthur historic site, it was agreed that a memorial garden incorporating the shell of the Broad Arrow Cafe would be established as a place of quiet beauty and calm contemplation. It was formally dedicated on the fourth anniversary of the massacre, the 28th of April 2000, by the Governor General. Today, the memorial garden offers a peaceful place open to the elements, sun, wind, rain and sky, where we may reflect and remember. Over the years, commemorative services have been held at the historic site, which have seen hundreds of people in attendance to pay their respects and to remember an event that changed the Australian nation forever. And I thought it was really interesting to kind of note, because um, we quite often find this, is, is was this legal that he had his guns, that side of things. So Bryant was able to drive a car and to get hold of guns despite lacking a driver's licence or a gun licence. So actually, it wasn't like he legally even had those guns. He'd managed to get hold of them. So a lot of the reforms came about as well that would have helped to stop somebody who shouldn't get hold of guns, get hold of guns. So, yeah, not only are they almost having this nationwide amnesty of weapons, it's also cracking down on on those that wanted to continue to have other weapons. So, yeah, it does sound like an amazing um, change that they invoked. I just wanted to say um, on with, and uh, you know, I have to talk about the Mandalay Bay massacre because there's so many similarities. Yeah, and it's still so fresh in my mind. And what's really interesting with this is that they they have uh, created a memorial garden at the Port Arthur historic site, and that that's amazing and that's brilliant, and it's a great way to remember the victims of this terrible tragedy. And there's nothing that I could see in Las Vegas, certainly nothing at Mandalay Bay. And um, I didn't actually go to the Las Vegas Village or what was formerly known as the Las Vegas Village where the the crowd um, were shot. 
Uh, so I don't know what's there, but I know it's essentially a car park now. So I, I think because it was all owned by MGM International, massive conglomerate, massive American company, they just wanted to really distance themselves from it. And I, I just found, I found it sad that there was no plaque in the reception of Mandalay Bay remembering the victims. That is There was really no memorial sad. garden. Yeah, there was nothing. Because, and I sort of understand it because there's probably almost an element of shame that, uh, you know, we let this guy into the building with 21 cases and a whole arsenal of weaponry and he committed this mass murder um, from the windows of our building. So I sort of get it, but uh, but it also pisses me off. So I just thought it's lovely that they, they have created this memorial garden at the Port Arthur historic site. It is such a difficult one because Hungerford has a memorial in the main yeah, street. I know. So, you know, it doesn't have to be... Um, you know, as as massive as this, you know, keeping the whole building as a centre and blah, blah, blah. It could be something um, on a smaller scale, but they haven't done anything. That is very sad, isn't it? I'm, I'm big on memorials because do you remember when I went to London a couple of summers ago and there was, um, it's, it's just sort of on the Thames, there was a building, I think it used to be the Midland Bank owned the building in the 90s and there were two window cleaners uh, in one of those sort of uh, crane things uh, cleaning the windows of this sort of, big building and the crane fell and they died and there's there's just this beautiful garden sandwiched between these two skyscrapers effectively overlooking the Thames and there's this like lovely plaque there to remember them under this tree and um, I just always find I can really feel the energy I know it sounds wanky to a lot of people but I can just feel it I can really feel the energy in places like that so I always think it's just right to remember the souls that are possibly still floating around there you know I think that's beautiful and that that kind of leads on to the end of this episode really really nicely because the following is a list of those killed in the Port Arthur massacre and I thought we'd say our thank yous and goodbyes to our listeners now and then finish with with the names of those people so thank you for listening everybody to this week's episode and um, we'll be back with you next week and so yeah here is here are the people who were killed in the Port Arthur massacre may they all rest in peace Winifred Joyce Applin, Walter jo- John Bennett, Nicole Louise Burgess, Sue Leng Chung, Alva Rhonda Gaylard, Zoe Ann Hall, Elizabeth Jane Howard, Mary Elizabeth Howard, Mervyn John Howard, Ronald Noel Jari, Tony Validvlu Kiston, Leslie Dennis Lever, Sarah Kate Lofton, David Martin, Nolene Sally Joyce Martin, Pauline Regina Masters, Alana Louise McCack, Madeline Grace McCack, Nanette Patricia McCack, Andrew Bruce Mills, Peter Brenton Nash, Gwenda Joan Neander, William Zing N, Anthony Eitingale, Mary Rose Nixon, Glenn Roy Piers, Russell James Pollard, Jeanette Kathleen Quinn, Helen Maria Saltzman, Robert Graham Saltzman, Kate Elizabeth Scott, Kevin Vincent Sharp, Raymond John Sharp, Royce William Thompson and Jason Bernard Winter.